Spirit speak this morning. This morning I was going to try to answer the question, why do bad things happen to good people? This is uh, when you try to either share the gospel, sometimes this is the question that people want to want answered. How can a good God allow bad things? If God was so good, life would be perfect. Why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, this is a conversation I've had with kids and teens and even adults who say it doesn't make sense. Because, uh, and I think it comes from it comes from a reason to not give God the respect He deserves. Because some people just don't want to believe, and it's everything from. How we twist the word good. We twist this word good. Good people. I feel like that, that definition of good comes from the human perspective. We say we are good. And by good we mean we're just not criminals. We didn't, we didn't do anything bad today. We didn't hurt anybody. We don't intentionally hate anybody. So we're good. Well, Jesus was very clear that only God is good. So the perspective of good is wrong. Because we're not good. I mean, if we were good, Jesus wouldn't have had to come. And instead, you look at the world today and we celebrate things that are bad and we twist it and we say they're good. We celebrate things like greed and selfishness. Sacrificing relationships and family for the careers we want. Pursuing pleasures. I mean, that's celebrated today. We say that's good. People say, oh, yes, look out for number one. Get what's yours. So I feel like the more accurate question is, why do bad things happen to people? But that's another perspective of bad things is what's the word bad mean? You know, we, we look at things that happen in the world, and I think there's two things going on. Number one, there's things we cannot control that happen. And that's stuff like loss of friends or family, loss of a job, you know, just due to the, the world. Or, the, or in literal sense, storms. I mean, we live in Tornado Alley. I mean, storms come, and we cannot do anything except try to get out of the way or hunker down. Storms, storms happen. But there's also this perspective of, oh, well, these, then there's the consequences of our actions. If someone, you know, like in the movie Brad mentioned, if someone drinks and gets behind the wheel and wrecks, is that, a, that is a bad thing, but it's also the consequence of one's actions. And there's a lot of motivational speakers, philosophical thinkers, and stuff like that, and there's probably dozens and dozens of motivational books that have been written about the idea of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. This isn't even a, a Christian perspective. This is just a worldly perspective that if you endure hard things, you come out stronger. You come out better. Broken bones heal stronger. But at the same time, it is also a Christian perspective, especially when it tests our faith. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says, Consider it pure joy... Brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. 
Well, today we're going to read a story about a man who had his faith tested. And I have the blessing of kind of finishing up our series on Genesis. And this story, it's hard to read, but it can be a quick read, and sometimes we glance over the story. But we learn about one of Jacob's sons and his favorite son, as he says. So in Genesis 37, we start at verse 1. It says, Jacob... Jacob lived in the land where his father stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers. The sons of Billah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their fathers a bad report about them. Now Israel, that's what Jacob was often called, loved Joseph more than the other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made a richly ornamented robe for him. And when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So we have Joseph, this guy who hasn't really done anything wrong. He was just born to the right mom. He was born to the, the wife of Joseph, or Jacob loved the most. His mom was Rachel, and he loved her. So Joseph didn't really do anything wrong. No, no, nothing wrong. But his brothers hated him. So it's kind of like the sin of, not really even the sin, it's just the, the result of favoritism by his own father. Now Joseph had a gift, and I'll skip through this a little bit, but Joseph had a gift. He, God was able to interpret dreams through him. And Joseph himself had dreams. He had dreams of stalks of grain bowing down to another stalk of grain, and he knew... That, he, that was about his brothers, and he told his brothers this. Now, it's one of those things you don't want to say to your brothers, I'm better than you. Anyone with siblings know you say something like that, and you're going to start something. So there developed a little bit of a rivalry, a little bit of hatred, as most siblings sometimes have, but then they, they crank it up a little bit. So we'll resume in verse 18, jumping ahead a little bit. Here's where the story goes. They saw him in a distance before he reached them. His father sent him to check on them. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. And when Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. They took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So, a little introduction about the adventure. I say adventure lightly. It's not really adventure. It's kind of a tragedy going on in Joseph's life. And I can't imagine a relationship more devastating than this. You have these... These men, you know, siblings, brothers, which 
supposedly brotherhood is supposed to be this, one of the strongest bonds you can have in this world. And yet, the people he grew up with probably shared memories with, shared parties with, shared celebrations with, maybe even got in trouble with. I don't know all the details that builds up brotherhood. And they reach a point where they're like, we want him dead. I can't imagine any type of betrayal that would be greater than that. And I get sibling squabbles. I do. I'm the youngest of four. So parents and siblings, if you know what that means, I'm the favorite. (laughs) And I tried to explain that it's just basic finance. I learned this when I was older. I was like, oh, this just makes more sense. You have four kids, two parents in the household. That's six. You take away three, you're left with three. When they're out of the house, there's more money, meaning I get more. I'm not the favorite. I just... The youngest. It's hard to explain to siblings who only see, you know, favoritism. But at the same time, I've never experienced my siblings wanting me dead. I'm sure they've hated me at points. But to want me dead, I've never experienced that betrayal. So you have Joseph going through a storm in his life. And he's going to learn, and it's going to take a while... That every storm is an opportunity for our faith. Every storm is an opportunity for our faith. Where we turn to when things go wrong, where we turn to when things are going bad, is an opportunity for faith. Because we see where he ends up in Genesis 39. Verse 1, it says, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian, was one of the Pharaoh's officials and the captain of the guard. And he brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. And he lived in the house with his Egyptian master. And when the master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and he became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. There's a lot going on here, and I don't know if you can tell, but you've got Joseph also kind of entering into a low point. He goes from something very traumatic, you know, something that's psychologists and counselors would love to dissect and get to the root of, like, oh, why did your brothers hate you? Let's move past it. It's over. But now he's in slavery. But at the same time, God is with him. Even in this low point, God is there. And I don't know if you see this. In verse 3, we see something amazing. His master, this is a non-believer who, if anything, he worshipped the Egyptian gods. This guy who doesn't know God saw that the Lord gave him success, that the Lord was with him. Makes me wonder how many non-believers can see if we have the Lord with us. And if we're prospering because of it. But at the same time, Joseph basically had authority and was blessing this house. He was a blessing to this house. But at the same time, for all the good things, sometimes there's some bad. 
In the second half of verse 6, it says, Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. He said, With me in charge, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? So there's a lot of going on, and at the same time, you have this young man and woman takes notice. But he is very clear, I am in a position of authority, everything I can do in this household, but you are not among them. You are not among what I'm allowed. I don't know what this means, and I can't imagine what it means at all, because I've never experienced slavery. But at the same time, I wonder if he's free to go, as he pleases. If he's free to eat whatever he wants, you know, take food out of the cupboard, prepare himself a meal, you know. Is he in charge of the other slaves? Does he get to say, hey, you cook for me? He could be. But he's very clear. This is, number one, a sin against my master, and number two, a sin against God. And here's the deal. There's so many times in our lives, and no matter, and no matter what we do, even if it's out of our control, it doesn't give us a, an excuse to be disobedient. It doesn't give us an excuse to sin, to engage in the acts of the world. No matter what we go through, we are still called to be set apart to live differently. So one day she tried to pull him into bed by his cloak or his coat, and he ripped it off and ran off, which is a good example of, you know, flee from sexual immorality in a very literal sense if you have to. And she took that, took it to her husband and said, look, he tried to make sport of me, and here's the proof. And in verse 21, or verse 19, it says, When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So I think God is still working in Joseph's story, whether he thinks so or not. I mean, it's out of the frying pan of slavery and into the fire. Basically, all right, now I'm out of slavery, now I'm shackled and in prison. But at the same time, I think there's one good thing. He's not dead. You think something like this, like a slave that would do this, if the accusations were true, they slit his throat, cut his head off, and be done with him. That's not to be trusted. And that's a waste of resources to feed someone like this. But instead, he ends up in prison. And this next part of the story is where it gets crazy, too. I mean, it's still a low point. But it says, the second half of 20, it says, While Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Again, we have this low point where Joseph is locked up for something he didn't do. But God's still with him. God's still with him. No matter what we're going through in life, no matter how low we feel like we are, God is still with us. God is still there. 
Now, Joseph, and there's a few chapters here. It's going to be a lot to go through, and I'll, I'll summarize it real quick. Now, Joseph has some opportunities before him. That gift he has that God has blessed him with, the gift to interpret dreams that where he does it through him, he's going to have an opportunity there. Now, while he's in control of the prison, we have two people who come to prison. You got, and this is where the, the king's prisoners are sent. Number one, you have the cupbearer. Pharaoh's cupbearer, which I can't imagine is an extravagant and difficult job. You know, what's your job? I carry the cup to my king. But apparently it's, it's bad, I guess. And what he did was bad. He offended his king, sent to prison. You also have the, the Pharaoh's baker. This is a little bit more difficult. Good cooks are, you know, they're great to have. He also offended the king, sent to prison. And while they're in prison, they're having dreams. You know, uh, you have the cupbearer having a dream of vines and grapes and, you know, being squeezed into a cup, and he don't know what it means. You've got the baker having a, a dream of bread in a basket sitting on his head, and he's like, I don't know what that means either. And you have them come to Joseph. Just, he just happens to be in charge. In verse 8, it says, We both had dreams, but there is no one to interpret them. Genesis 40 it says, Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Tell me your dreams. So he shared these dreams. These men share these dreams with Joseph. And Joseph basically has good news for one, bad news for another. To the cupbearer, he says, Hey, guess what? That means in three days, there's three vines, grapes, and you know, being squeezed into a cup, the Pharaoh's going to give you your job back. Guess they couldn't find the spot to fill someone to carry a cup properly. So you're going to get your job back. The baker, on the other hand, since birds are picking out of a basket on your head, that means you're going to be killed in three days. So, he's, but, but at the same time, to the cupbearer, he says, Hey, when you go back, remember me. I did nothing wrong. You know, I'm not supposed to be here. If you get a chance, mention it to your boss, you know, the king. Say, Hey, there's this nice guy. He helped me out, kind of told me, put me at ease. Remember me. That's all he asks. But Genesis 41, verse 1. The first few words say, Two full years passed, and then Pharaoh had a dream. So I think when, you know, we don't act, God will act for us. I think that's pretty obvious. So two years passed, and then Pharaoh had a dream. And he had a dream of seven thin or seven uh, fat cows and then seven thin cows and then he had a dream of seven fat stalks of grain and seven thin stalks of grain and he has no clue what it is and he brings all his magicians and all sorts of stuff to him and no one can figure out what these dreams mean and he keeps having them and it's driving him crazy and he basically says is there anyone here who can interpret dreams and tell me what this means and then the cupbearer two years he's like oh I know a guy, he helped me during a hard time in my life. And so he calls on Joseph out of prison. Genesis 41, verses 15 and 16, it says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, he says, I had a dream, no one can interpret it. But I've heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And what Joseph says is really cool. He says, I cannot do it. Huge letdown for the Pharaoh, I guess, but 
Joseph replied to Pharaoh, but God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. Now Joseph, and he tells him, he's like, hey, something bad's coming up. First of all, you're going to have seven years where there's going to be a lot of food, so much you're going to be drowning in it. But then you're going to have seven years of famine where nothing's going to grow. So he gives them this bad news. And here's what I think is really cool. Joseph had two opportunities, and probably even more, to use these gifts that God had given him and the things that God does through him for personal gain. Imagine if he went to the warden who already liked him and said, Hey, I have this magical gift and I just witnessed it. I knew that guy was getting out of prison. I don't belong in here. We can make money off me. Imagine if we just started saying, Hey, bring all these people having dreams and I will tell everyone. He doesn't bring glory to himself at all. He brings glory to God. He honors God. And Joseph went even farther when he was talking to the Pharaoh. Verses 33 and 34, he says, Look, you sh- here's what you should do, Pharaoh, with this coming famine, is you should look for a discerning man. Look for a discerning man, put him in charge of the land, have him prepare for the famine, because bad things are happening. Put someone in charge. He says, appoint commissioners to take a fifth during the years of abundance and prepare for the famine. Have, store it up. And who did Pharaoh choose? The man who had that spirit of God, who honored God, even at his low point in life. And Joseph was released. And not only released, he was raised up into this position of authority right next to the king of Egypt himself. But he had these opportunities to glorify himself. Probably could have used it for his own personal gain. And instead, he chose to worship and honor God even during this storm in his life. You see, everyone endures storms in their life. There's no question about that. Everyone's going to go through hard times. And everyone knows that sometimes we just have to get through it. But God calls us not only to endure them, but to worship Him in the storms. And here's the cool thing about storms. They're nothing to God. Like Jesus takes naps during the storms. You remember? Like that's what they are to Him. They're nothing to be worried about. But not worshiping God, not honoring God. That's what we should worry about. So in Genesis 42, we come to this high point of Joseph's life. It seems like he's finally getting out of it. Finally out of the hardship of life. But I feel like we're starting to get to the, um, the battles inside himself. But at the end of 41, at the end of 41, before we jump to 42, we see that he recognizes what he's been through. Verse 50, and 50, 50 through 52, it says something really cool. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. So he gets married to a daughter of Potipharah named Asenath, a priest of On. I'm guessing that's a, an Egyptian god. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh, which is Hebrew for forget. And he said, this is what he says in verse, what is that, in verse 51. It is because that God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. So I think it's really important here to know, Joseph ain't crazy. He hasn't been driven crazy about what he goes through, and he recognized that I went through some stuff. This was not pleasant. It wasn't fun to be a slave, and it wasn't fun to be in prison. 
Even though he had success there, he still went through, in his words, trouble. And then verse 52, the second son he named Ephraim and said, It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And Ephraim means twice fruitful. I guess his second son meaning fruitful. So Joseph knows he's went through some stuff. But at the same time, Joseph is moving past it. He is over it. He is done. Kind of like the past is past. We try to move on. Yes. So Joseph is now in authority. He has endured some suffering. He recognizes it, but he is not broken because of it. Now, he was put in charge, and for seven years, there was plentiful grain. There was Everything was growing. People had so much, and it hit the whole world, or at least the world that they know of. <laughs> but the famine did come, and the famine hit everywhere too. But only Egypt prepared. And in Genesis 42... The famine even hit back home. In Canaan, his father and his brothers went through it. And in Genesis 42, we hear the story of basically Jacob, his father, tells his remaining brothers, saying, hey, we're going to starve, but I know Egypt has prepared for this. They've got grain. Go buy some. They took some silver, and they went down to Egypt to buy it. And in Genesis 42, we have a blast from the past and something I don't know if Joseph ever thought he'd have to endure. And probably one of the more difficult decisions he'd have to make. In verse 6, Genesis 42, it says, Joseph was the governor of the land and the one who sold grain to all its people. And so when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him as their faces on the ground. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. Remember those dreams he said and he told his brothers and that really made them angry and kind of set them over the edge? Someday you're going to bow to me. Well, I think he's realizing what God is doing. And they said, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said, you have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man, who live in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. And Joseph said to them, it is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that the words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back to your starving household. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do so. And they said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen, and that's why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you? I like Reuben. 
He's, he's that brother who knows better. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? You wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. So you got, the, you basically have this famine that what they knew would come to pass, or at least what Joseph knew would come to pass, and all of Egypt comes. And he's seeing this chance, and he's like, these are the men who wanted me dead, and then they ended up selling me into slavery. I don't know how you'd feel, but I feel like the human part of us, you know, would say, oh, you ain't getting nothing. Oh, revenge is going to be sweet. Oh, you're going you're gonna to get it? And I was like, oh, Reuben, you're still cool. You know, maybe that's type of deal, you know. I don't know. But there's so much going on. And what really ends up happening is this, is he, I guess, has a, a heart to heart and he realizes what's going on. He only takes one brother. He takes Simeon, binds them before them, and he says, all right, I'm going to keep one. If you come back, bring your youngest. I want to see that. The one he wants is Benjamin. That's the only other pure brother he has. You see, they share the same mom. And I, I guess Benjamin became the favorite after Joseph was killed because, I mean, as when they go back, and there's a lot going on here, and I'll kind of quickly go through it. When they go back, they realize that, hey, someone put silver back in our bag. We brought it to pay for it, but then halfway through home, we checked our stuff, checked the grain, yep, we bought it, and then our silver's still here too, and they're freaking out. I, we don't know what happened. Someone put it back. Now we're really in trouble if we ever go back. So they go home, and their father, greatly distressed, oh, I lost another son. Look at the bad things you guys are doing to me. And, it's, and they also say, well, and we also have our silver too. And he's like, well, now you're really messed up. And so what ends up happening is this. Is they, basically, I think it's Judah has to say to his father, and he says, listen, if we want to go back and buy more, which they're going to need to, and they make a second trip, we have to bring Benjamin with us. And his father's like, no, you can't do that. You can't take him. If you take him and if anything happens to him, it would kill me. And they say, but we have to, otherwise the, the mean Egyptian won't sell us anything. So what ends up happening is this, is they do return. They do return and Judah promises to his father, he says, hey, I'm going to look out for Benjamin. It'll be on me. I'll protect him with my life. But if anything happens, it'll be on me. So they have to go back. They have to go back. And in Genesis 43, verses 15 through 16, it says this. The men took the gifts and double the amount of silver. And they also took Benjamin. So they took double the amount of silver to pay back what they already had and they didn't pay for it for some reason. And then to pay for the next trip. They hurried down to Egypt and they presented themselves to Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Take these men to my house, slaughter an animal, and prepare dinner. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took the man to Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought, We were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time, and he wants to attack us overpower us, seize us as slaves, and take our donkeys. I think the donkeys would be the least of their worries. 
They went up to Joseph's steward and they spoke to him at the entrance of the house. Please, sir, we had come down here the first time to buy food, but at the place we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver, the exact weight in the mouth of the sack. So we've brought it back with us. We've also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put silver in our sacks. It's all right, he said, you know, Joseph's steward. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. And then he brought Simeon, the brother that Joseph took, back out to them. Here's the deal. They didn't receive their silver. Joseph had them put it back in. Now, I don't know what's going on, because I can't imagine. There's, it seems like this story has so many twists and turns and so many confusing things, and I don't know. I keep coming to the clue, like three different things. Either number one, Joseph is still angry, and he is showing a little bit of vengeance, and basically he's like, I don't know if I want to kill them yet, so I'm just going to drive them crazy and make them think I'm going to kill them. And maybe he's a little showing a little fury, kind of that passive-aggressive type. But at the same time, a little aggressive, he did lock him up, and he did take a one a brother for a while. Or number two, he may be testing them. He may be testing what they're, if they are still the men who sold him into slavery, who wanted him dead. If they are still those men, and if they still have this brutal, violent side. Or number three, he is trying to teach them a lesson through a very unconventional means. But in Genesis 44, Genesis 44, we have this moment where Joseph eats with his brothers. He has them fed. He gives them their, their grain. But he, and he fills up their cups or fills up their, their sacks. But he takes one of his personal cups. It's a silver cup, and he puts it in Benjamin's bag. And then he sends them on their way. The next morning, they leave. But then Joseph tells his men, hey, go follow them. They took something that's in one of their bags. And the, the, the men he sends, they go find these brothers and say, hey, one of you took something and it's in one of your bags and we know it. Because Joseph did it. He had it done. And they said, all right, well, whoever we find this in, well, whoever's bag we find this in, we're going to take them as a slave. We won't punish all of you. We'll just punish that one. And it's in Benjamin. Benjamin, the one who Jacob said, if anything happens to him, it would kill me. If anything happens to him, again, favoritism is not, it's probably not a, you know, a good thing for Jacob, but that's what he said. And Judah, Judah went up to him and said, don't do this. If you take him, it would kill our father. Don't do this. I'll let me take the place. That's what he said in, in uh, 45, it's in, no, it's 44 verse 33 and 34. It says, he says, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. He says, I cannot go back to my father if the boy is not with me. Do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. And so they were brought back before Joseph. And I don't know if they passed, if this was like passing the test or if Joseph finally had a broken heart because now he's got something that he never experienced when he was there. I mean, kind of. He had Reuben trying to stick up for him, trying to rescue him, and then he had Judah saying, no, we should not kill him. We don't want the blood on our hands. And now Judah is the one to say, let, let me take the place 
of my brother. I don't know if he just reached a breaking point, but in Genesis 45, he comes clean. He reveals himself. Remember, they couldn't tell who he was. They had no clue. Genesis 45, verse 3, it says, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were, too, were not able to answer him because they were too frightened at his presence. And then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they did so, they, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there had been famine in the land. In the next five years, there will, be, there will not be plowing or reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So it seems like everything that was going on and all the stuff that Joseph had went through, he's finally realizing this is either what God has put before me, the decision to save, or the decision to condemn. I don't know about you, but I feel like when it comes to all, you know, hardship that is not of your fault, I mean, everyone can agree it. We can endure that. We can get through that. But decisions like this, when you have the choice to forgive someone who, and maybe restore relationships, that's an internal battle that I feel like the human side often wins. And Joseph had a choice. He can restore this relationship, help these brothers, who, the people who wanted him dead, or let them starve. But I think he sees what God is doing and how God can take tragedies, take storms, and no matter how bad they are, bring something good out of them. So I think Joseph, in a very real way, makes a sacrifice and, because if there's one thing I've realized from the Bible, it's this. Restoration requires sacrifice. To restore relationships, to restore anything, requires some type of sacrifice. Joseph gave up his anger, his vengeance, which is a right he probably had. He gave up even the desire to withhold forgiveness. I mean, and he didn't have to, but he forgave and he restored the relationship he had with his brothers because he sees that God is doing something great here. All restoration requires sacrifice. I mean, the whole book of Hebrews is about how God restored the relationship between mankind and him through his son. Restoration requires sacrifice. So Joseph... After this, he embraces his brothers, he weeps, and he, it says specifically he kissed all his brothers. It means even the ones who wanted him dead the most, he's, he's hugging them and crying on them. And I told this to Bobby so, that earlier this week. I said there's too much I can say about Joseph's story. But I think one of the things that sticks out to me is this. Judah. Judah was the one trying to put himself in, you know, in harm's way to preserve his brother. He said, take me instead of Benjamin. It reminds me of that when God calls us to love our neighbor, he doesn't do it for any specific reason. He doesn't say, love your neighbor because they're good people, because we already, already remember, no one's really good. He doesn't say, love your neighbor for their potential in the world, you know, 
because some people aren't going to be doctors and surgeons and do great things. He doesn't say any of that. He says, love your neighbor just because I love them. Judah put himself in harm's way and showed love for his brother, not really because he loved his brother. It seems like (laughs) these brothers did not get along. They probably didn't share much love for each other. No, he did it out of love for his father, and his father loved his son. He says, don't do this. It would break my father's heart. It would kill my father. Are we honoring our father in the way we love others? Are we honoring our heavenly father in the way we love others? And if there's one thing to take note of this story, as I jump ahead to the end, you see there's a lot that goes on. Jacob, basically Joseph tells his brothers to bring their father to Egypt. Pharaoh gets all excited because after all, Pharaoh loves this guy. I was like, this guy is basically my right-hand man in Egypt. Yes, bring your family. We'll carve out a nice piece of land. You guys can thrive. And boy, did they thrive. So Jacob comes to Egypt. They have some moments. Joseph is reunited with all his brothers and his father. In Genesis 50, the big thing comes to fruition. Because here's the deal. Joseph realizes what's going on. His suffering is not in vain. He start, And I think this is one thing the, the story of Joseph truly shows is that one man's suffering can be others' salvation. Because that's what he realized. He's like, I suffered so that you guys might be saved. Now, does that erase the past? No. He's, I mean, he's clear. He's like, I suffered. I went through hardship. His sons, he named his sons to remember what he went through. But in Genesis 50... Verses 15 and 20, it kind of comes to fruition when we read this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, and they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? They sent word to Joseph saying, Your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you were to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs. They committed in treating you so badly. Please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. And when their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and they threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Do you intend to harm me? He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Man, I think I I always think about when, what would we do in this position? Because that's some internal battle going on. Do I forgive? Do I forget? Do I move on? I can't imagine what we do. I don't know where I fit in Joseph's story. But the more I look at the story, I think of how I see the gospel in every part of the Bible. Because you have Joseph suffering for something he didn't do wrong. And God turning it into the salvation of others. When he says, what you did, you intended to harm me, but God 
did for good. Is that not Jesus saying the cross? You put me on the cross to kill me, but God's going to turn this into something good. Joseph's story is, I feel like it's an important part of the history of the Bible. It's an important part of the history of our people where Jesus comes from. And as I get ready to close out tonight, and I ask the worship team to come up on stage, and I want to say this. We are all going to go through suffering. We are all going to go through something traumatic. We are all going to go through tragedies in life, whether it's storms of our making where we reap our own, just our own repercussions from our actions, or stuff we will never be able to control. We will never be able to control what happens to us. But how we respond, what we do when that happens, it matters. Are we going to be obedient even when we're at our lowest? Are we going to struggle to glorify and worship God when we really don't want to and everything is so chaotic and we'd much rather get out? Or are we going to focus on restoring relationships, restoring others, restoring what we have, even when we have the opportunity to avenge or hurt? When I look at the story of Joseph, I don't think I'm Joseph. <laughs> I don't think I, I don't know. Sometimes I doubt myself. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the spirit would work in me. But I see myself as more of the brothers. Because I get a little bit jealous. I can get a little angry. And ultimately, it was my sins who killed Christ. Because he died for my sins as well. He suffered for my sins as well. Joseph's story is important. And I think it's important because of this. It is just a fragment of God's power. You know, so many people ask that question, why do bad things happen to good people? Because they're saying, if God's good, bad things wouldn't happen at all. I think they're making God small. God's power isn't that bad things don't happen. God's power is that even when bad things happen, there is good that comes out of it. God can take the most traumatic tragedy in your life and turn it into something glorious our God is a God that turns tragedies into triumphs and we're reminded this by the cross a symbol that was at one point a symbol of pain suffering and punishment and God turned it into a symbol of hope that's the God we serve and Jesus reminded us John 16 verse 33 said and he told his disciples he's especially as he was getting ready to leave things were supposed to go down and they were like what do we do if you're gone he said you will have trouble you will have trouble there's no doubt about that everyone's going to have trouble but i he said take heart because i have overcome the world the difference between us and when we go through our trouble and the rest of the world is we know it ends and there is hope on the other side God promised eternal life. God promises salvation. We are not suffering in vain. Jesus did not suffer in vain. He did it for the saving of lives. Our lives. So this morning, if you are, if you are in a storm, because you're either in one, you're about to go in one, you're coming out of one, 
If you're in a storm and there is something going on, you are at your lowest, I pray you go to God. Because He is with you in the storm. He was with Joseph in slavery. And even in a prison cell, He was with Joseph. Wherever you're at in your life, God is with you. You may not know it, but He's with you. So if you're in a storm and you need prayer this morning, we, we can gather around you and pray. Or if you want to know the God who turns tragedies into triumphs, who suffered for our sake, if you want to make that decision to follow him for the first time, we'd love to pray about you, pray with you and talk about that. But this morning, God's calling you. God's calling you to come. To come draw near to him because he is with you. I'm going to say a word of prayer. We're going to sing... And I pray, I pray you know that even at your lowest, God is with you. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for, thank you so much for Jesus, the example he set, the sacrifice he made, his love he had for us, Lord. Thank you so much for your word and the stories we learn from it, Lord. And I pray it inspires us. I pray it, it guides us. Lord, thank you so much for stories like Joseph's, Lord, and it's just a fraction of endurance, a fraction of your power, how you can turn bad things and turn them into something glorious. Lord, thank you so much that we don't suffer in vain. And Lord, I pray you show us how you can turn tragedies into triumphs and do wonderful things through even the darkest storms. Lord, bless this this morning that we lift up your word. Lord, pray for those who are in storms, Lord, that they they draw near to you, that they know you are there. Lord, we thank you so much for all that you do, and Lord, we, we are so thankful for your presence. Be with us this week. Lord, help us see the peace on the other side. We love you. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen.